word that you will guide and lead us in all that you would have us to see. And as we look at this very interesting story that of disobedience and judgment. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been covering in, in chapter uh, 22, 23, and 24, Balaam. Balaam being hired and asked to curse him, and he, and he blessed Israel. And we mentioned that in the next couple of chapters, Balaam had gone in and told Balak how to get Israel to basically curse themselves, you know, by being disobedient to God. And in chapter 25, we're going to be reading about that disobedience. So setting that stage and starting in chapter 25, verse 1. Okay. Yes. Is this, is this where um, Balaam uh, gets the Israelites to sin sexually? And yes. And all that? Yes. That's a question that comes up on my, my Bible crossword. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifice of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself with Baal Beor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So we're going to stop there. Remember, Israel has been called to have no other gods before God, before God uh, to not use his name in vain, to, to worship him, and to basically stay away from the citizenship of this area that they're coming into. And we're, even though it doesn't tell us that Balaam is the one that did this later on in Numbers, it's going to tell us that, and also in the New Testament it tells us that Balaam was the one that told Balak how to basically bring God's anger. And it says... As the people began that uh, lived in Shittim, they began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And whoredom is a very strong word. It's prostitution, all that, all the sexual sins that go along with that. And basically, we were told in in the New Testament that Balaam told him, "Send your daughters into them, and they will, and use them to turn Israel from their God." And he says, and then their God will curse them. And that's, we know that that's what God does. He punishes those who are disobedient. And it says, and these daughters of Moab called the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people did eat and bowed themselves down to their gods. All right? Uh, to the gods of the Moabite women. And we see this over and over in the New Testament when, when people have marriages that are unequally yoked, the righteous will end up invariably falling down. We see it in Solomon's life. Solomon, the wisest man of all men that ever lived, according to God, got married, had just a, just a few wives and concubines, you know, <laughs> almost a thousand. And eventually, you know, they, they, we read that they told him, you know, you've got your temple to your God and we don't have temples to our gods. And, you know, and begged him to build it. And then you could just picture the next statement, well, you know, well, you never come to my <laughs> temple to worship, you know, and before long, Solomon has fallen from God's grace because he has offered sacrifices to all these other gods. And this is what's happening here. These girls come in and immediately get them drugged down. 
And we want to be able to understand this because it's so important. It's not just sexual sins that do this. If you hang out with people that aren't godly all the time, and that's who you hang out with, you will probably find yourself doing whatever it is they do. Okay? If you're hanging with people who do drugs and alcohol or whatever, you're going to end up falling down to drugs or alcohol. If, if you're around liars all the time, you probably find yourself starting to tell lies. You're with people who are sexually active, you're going to find yourself getting there. You're, you're going to be like who you hang out with. Which is why God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as we see the day approaching. If we hang out with other Christians who are hopefully trying to live a godly life, we should be developing that. And in the scriptures it tells us that you will be like you, what you worship as well. And if we're worshiping God, we're going to become more like God. If we're worshiping idols, as in this case, you're going to become more like whatever that idol is that you're worshiping. And so we're seeing, it says that Israel joined himself. He bound themselves together in un union unto Baal Beor. Now, Baal is a god of that area. And he is the chief god of that area. You're going to read all through the, the Old Testament all about Baal. He's out there. He's going to be a constant thorn in the side of Israel all the way through their kings, all the way into captivity. Baal is the, the, the supreme god of that area, and he's also a fertility god. So the practice of, of worship for Baal always involved sexual activity. And so we are seeing they bound themselves unto Baal, Beor, which Beor is the name of the mountain in, in Moab. So this particular one is the Moabite form of ba ba Baal. And so there's a fertility God. And it says that God was, that the anger of God was kindled against Israel. And this literally means there was a fire. It was furious. He was furious with them. And this is going to be one of those times when God starts acting quickly on them. And there's been several times. Remember we had the, the Korite rebellion where Korah and a number of other people were saying, you know, we can be just as good as you, as, as you Moses. Who, who, made, who made you the ruler? Why should you be priest? And God opened up the earth and swallowed Korah and his family and all those that stood with him. We saw other times when, when uh, God has moved to cause a plague to start. Remember a little while back we had them getting into the wrong direction and worshiping other idols, and God sent the snakes amongst them. And you remember they put up the, the serpent on a pole, and if they, all they had to do was look at that serpent, and they'd be healed. And but God sent a plague, and thousands died during that plague. Thousands died during the Korite rebellion. Thousands died during the, the worship of the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain and came down, and, and God struck, struck, uh, caused a plague and said, go you know, have a slaughter. You know, over and over, Israel sins, and thousands die. It's probably good for us that thousands don't die when we do sins. <laughs> Uh, but 
what is the impact on our immediate family, our immediate friends, when we go into a sinful lifestyle? Especially for men who are in charge of a family and they're the head of their house. And there will be problems from their disobedience. But sin has a consequence, and we're going to look at this consequence that they're facing. And it's fairly severe that we're going to look at. Verse 4, And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned from, from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay every, every one his men that were joined unto Baal Beor. And behold, one of the... Okay. So God is telling Moses, kill everyone that is participating in this sin. Okay? And he grabs the heads of the families and says, we are to, to execute everybody who is committing this sin. This to God is a very serious sin because they are basically committing adultery as far as he's concerned. He says that Israel was his bride, his wife. So by them turning to other gods, we're seeing an activity that, as far as God's concerned, is adultery. And if you remember back when we looked at the Ten Commandments, the punishment for adultery is death. All right? And so God is instituting that penalty. They have turned from him. They're worshiping, another, they're worshiping other gods. And in the process, committing adultery and fornication with these Moabite women. So you see the seriousness of what's going on here. This isn't just a lightweight sin. And what's really bad is so many people are participating in this. And God is saying, we've got to stop this. When sin comes into a family or a community, God, and it affects other people, God says it's got to be stopped. Paul in Corinthians said, told the Corinthians, you have a, you have a man in there who's having sex with his mother, his stepmother, and he's bragging about it, <laughs> and he says, kick him out of the church and so that Satan can discipline him and maybe he'll repent and come back. All right? God does have certain things he says deal with them do not let sin and this is what I've said I want anybody and everybody to come to our church but if they're trying to promote a sinful lifestyle within the church then we have to deal with that sinful lifestyle uh, otherwise I want everybody that we can't have in this church you know it doesn't matter what sin they're committing because we're all sinners but if they're coming in and saying well you know come and join me in my sin <laughs> They're not going to say it quite that bluntly, but you know, you know what I'm saying. You know, come and join me in my sinful activities, and they're trying to draw our people away. Then it's going to be okay. Now we've got a war going on because God says, "Don't let that happen." All right, and then it's no, you're not allowed in the church until you're willing to repent and correct your lifestyle. And this is what's going on here. Moses has been told, "Go out and slay these people. Get rid of the sin in the camp." And they're, they're going to go out and they're going to, and it says in verse 5, slay every man, everyone his men that have joined, that were joined unto Baal Beor. So everybody who's made that sacrifice, you know, that, have, that is going out and committing this 
licentious lifestyle. And again, Beor, about the Baal is a fertility god, and all the fertility gods had one thing in common on their worship is basically orgies happened, in, and that was how they worshiped. You ended up with an orgy, whether it's Baal, Diana, Athena in the, in the Greek and Roman days. You, you were, you know, part of their worship was just massive orgies. And so there's a huge problem going on. And it's open. This isn't, this isn't being done privately or anything. People know what's going on. And uh, in verse 6 it says, And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation and the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. This is a pretty bold guy. <laughs> He's coming. He already knows that Moses has said, Don't do this. People are at the church, you know, basically at the church, the congregation of the temp, you know, the tabernacle congregation, they're, they're praying and, and repenting and you know, trying to get this done. And this guy comes within sight of, of Moses and the church, bringing this Moabitish woman with him and enters a tent. What kind of woman is that? Huh? That a woman of Moab. So it's just uh, one of the women that from Balak's uh, camp that he's sending in there, prostitutes, probably, quote-unquote, priestesses of, of Baal. And so they're going in and, and drawing these men into this action, getting them to, to sin. And in verse 7, And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly, so that the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. Phineas is one of, is the grandson of Aaron. And you know, Aaron's the high priest. And Eliezer is one of the children of, of Aaron. Phineas, when he sees this person's boldness in his sin, to bring it that close, to bring it within sight, of the church and the leaders says he grabbed a spear and he followed the man into the tent and in Hebrew this word for tent is literally the bedchamber it is where it is where they go for their evenings pleasure <laughs> and wow. huh? what is play is it, I know it's a, what is what plague it's a deadly some kind of deadly disease right? plague it means in this case slaughter all the people that are dying. Plague can mean disease, but in this case it means slaughter. Moses was told to kill these people. They were killing them with the sword. And in this, in this case it is slaughter. And Eliezer gets up, and this is a very strong word for gets up. He is, he is getting up very strongly. He's angry. He's going to go defend God. And he grabs that javelin or a lance a spear follows this guy into the bedchamber tent and the picture of this is he thrusts it through both of them at the same time and because they're in the bedchamber it most likely is that he's got them right in the middle of what they're huh? 
Yeah, right there when they're in full full force and he stabs them through her belly, you know, and pins them basically to the ground. And God stops the slaughter. He says, Okay, Phineas, because of your actions, you guys can stop. Because you were very strong on this. And we I'm trying to be delicate with this whole picture, but uh, you know, it is a very strong huh? Yeah, but it is a very strong picture. They're, they are bringing these men into you know, fornication and adultery, and Phineas catches them in the act and, and runs them right through with his spear. Both of them with the same spear, which means that they were in close, intimate contact. And God says that it stopped the plague. And in this particular case, the word is probably better translated slaughter because Moses was told, you know, get the leaders together and start killing these people. And it's just, it just is really to show us the seriousness of disobedience with God. In this case, it was very disobedient. God's very angry with them. And part of it is probably because they keep doing this. They keep turning away from him, even with Moses leading them. And we're going to see this pattern, if you, as you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see this pattern over and over again. Uh, when well, that still happens in, in this day. Oh, it still happens because we, are, we do the same thing. We get disobedient to God. He sends judgments and corrections to us. And you know, with Israel, we see it when, when they go in, into Canaan with Joshua as their leader. They do good for a while, then they kind of get off in their own thing. The book of Judges is a whole cycle of, you know, you, you're doing good, you're doing good, you start sinning, and you get down to the bottom, God judges, you put them under, under some form of captivity or, or, or direction, and they repent, and a leader is brought up, and the whole book of Judges is that cycle. But did they, uh, like, drink and do drugs when all this was going on? Oh, probably. That stuff is not new. That stuff is not new, and we keep bringing it up. There's nothing new under the sun. They were having, this, was, this practice of worshiping fertility gods involved sex and alcohol and drugs, and drugs are not new. They've been around forever, and the word sorcery in the Bible has a, especially in the New Testament, has the, is pharmakia, which is talking about drugs. Uh, and you know, I, I have a magician friend who tells me magicians stay on the cutting edge of science and so that they can do amazing things that people don't understand, but it's just simple. You know, if you understand the, the science behind it, you understand exactly how, how, he does, how they do it. And he talks about how they can take a drink and they put, what they do is they put a quick gel thing in the, in the bottom of the cup, they pour water in, they can turn the water upside down, the gas, Upside down, they can make straw stand straight up, you know, just because of a science experiment. Did they, did they have multiple sex back in those days? Part of the fertility was it, it was a literal orgy. Hundreds of people, hundreds of people in the same place, 
swapping around and, and like a swimming pool party you know, those days. But it gets out of hand like that. But that was what you did to worship these gods. And even in the Greek and Roman days, when you had a fertility god, that is how you worship those gods. Diane was one of the Roman yes. ones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, again, nothing new. There's nothing new that, you know, we just, don't, we just don't name it the same as they did. You know, there's still orgies that go on, and, you know, and they're technically worshiping the god of fertility without putting that god on the pedestal. So all of this stuff is, goes on, and it's not new. You know, it's, alcohol would flow in these, these things. Anything that would be breaking down inhibitions would be used. And Phineas is saying, this is going to stop, as he brought, that, brought this uh, man down completely. And so we just want to maybe, you know, bring out the idea, nothing new. Everything, everything that we do, and this is what I want to keep us understanding. Everything today that we think is all brand new, nothing's ever happened before, has always been out there. It's always been out there. Alcohol has always been abused. Now their alcohol back there was harder to abuse because it didn't have as much alcohol content, but they also knew how to make alcohol with high content and mix it and a lot of times they would mix the wine with herbs and, and stuff to help intensify either, either to flavor it or intensify the effects, the intoxicating effects. So this is not, all this stuff is not new. Learning, learning how to use herbs to, to loosen people up or you know, make them tired or whatever, you know, all the stuff that we do is not new. And, well, they wouldn't use them in pills as much as they would for drinks. To, like, keep you away so you can they would use herbs. There's, believe me, there's herbs that will do anything that a pill will do. There's herbs that can be used to do that. Keep you awake for long times to make you start hallucinating. Put you to sleep to make you a victim. Give you, give you energy. You know, all of the stuff that we can do with chemical pills, they could do with herbal. Part of the problem that people have is not living in the moment that they're in. God wants us living in right at the moment we're at. Too many people worry about the future that they can't control. And it's sad. They waste everything that they're doing in the, in the moment because they're so worried about something they have no control of in the future. Or they're living under regrets of the past that can't be changed, and they're so, re so living in regret that they're not in the moment. And God says, his name is I am that I am. God is the God of the moment that we are in. Okay, now he happens to be the God of the future and the past, but he, I really believe when he said I am, he was telling us, I'm with you right in the moment that you're in. And we've got to keep this in mind. We have little to no control over our future. Now, we can a small amount of control over the next few seconds of our life, maybe even minutes of our life, but even that is an illusion. I could drop dead in any second with a heart attack or, or an aneurysm or anything like that that could kill me, 
and all my plans <laughs> are done. Okay, or or at least the worst case is I go to the hospital, you know, and I'm my, all my plans are gone. So we have to be living in what's going on now. God says to cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, it is easy and light. In other words, quit thinking about all the things that are going on in your life and all the problems. And by learning forgiveness and, and getting out of regret, we don't live in the past. And there's lots of people, and we all know people who live in the past. You know, uh, this happened to me, that happened to me, and, and because this and that, and, and this person and that person, and I just, you know, my whole life is messed up, and I have no more control over it because of all this stuff that's happened, and they tell you all the stories of their past over and over and over and over and over and over, and, you know, and keep doing it. We've got to say the past is done. God has given, God has taken care of the past. I have no control over the future, so God, take care of that and see what God is doing in the moment. Uh, Blackaby and experience in God said, find what, what God's doing and join him. And God is always doing something at that moment. He's not going to say, I want you doing something down the road. And one of the things that God does is he always shows us what we're to do now. Okay, doesn't show us what we're going to do 20 years from now. Yeah. And that's the hard part is being able to understand whether it's God telling you something or something that you're telling yourself. And one of the things that I have shared with people is if it's something that I don't want to do and I really feel strongly that, that I'm supposed to do it, it's probably God. I mean, outside of sin. You know, I just don't feel like going to, you know, a drive to pick somebody up and, you know, and, and everything in me saying, I've got to go do it, it's probably God telling me. I, I will have a hard time if I'm doing something I want to do, I'm probably not going to say that it's God telling me to do it because separating my desires from God's, God's desires are very difficult to do under, if it's something you want to do. All of what happens, though, when you go into sin, whether it's gambling is a good example, you get into... You get into gambling and, you know, before you know it, you've lost everything. And usually that happens to somebody who's won at least once because they're chasing the next big win. You know, when you lose all the time, you, you never really get addicted to gambling because it's a, a losing experience. But when you've won something and you've made some money, then you're always chasing that next big, Street. you know, win, win time. And so those are the ones who really get addicted to those who've had at least one or two good wins and they're going... I know. If I just keep going, I'm going to hit the I'm going to hit the numbers again, and those are the ones that get themselves in trouble and lose everything. But again, the key to our entire life is to live in the moment that we're living. Churches can do this also. Churches have been around for a long time. Can say we used to do, we had this, that we were this, and it's like quit living in the past. God, that's done. God's got something new for us. And we're going to go forward in a new direction. And we can do that in our Christian life. You know, I remember back when I read my Bible every day and I was praying and I talked to everybody. Okay, good. Let's go back. You know, good thing. Go back to doing what you did and get the feelings back. But quit living in I used to be. Okay. 
Even good things can stop us dead if we're remembering the, it used to be, I used to be doing. I want to be careful, the past can be something that stops us dead, but also too much focus on the future. And I'm not saying we totally ignore the future and don't, you know, we don't start a retirement account so that you'll have something to retire on, but, but if we're all, but you kind of understand what I'm saying, if you're so focused on the future, we lose today. And I know people are so focused on the future that they lose today, and a lot of them are businessmen. They're so focused on where they're wanting to take their company that they forget that they're running a company at that moment. And they don't do the things they need to do at the moment because they're so focused on where they want to get to. And yes, it's good to have a goal. Yes, it's good to have plans, but we stay focused on today to try to work ourselves in the right direction because it is a terrible thing to get totally distracted. And we want to see this because God's going to make promises to us. And God very wonderfully and, and very graciously does not show us where he wants us to be in the future. Why? Because, number one, we might get scared to death about where he wants to take us. You know, and I like using somebody like Billy Graham. If Billy Graham had been, you know, when he first started preaching, said, okay, you're going to be preaching to millions of people all at the same time, and he's never even preached to a church of 100 or 200, do you think he would have ever stepped out <laughs> to do the first steps? Or because he didn't have what God told him, he'd say, well, this is just too small. I'm not going to go forward. Either way, you either get terrified into not moving, or you go, well, this just isn't big enough. And this is something that is a key to living life. If you always look into the, well, this just isn't big enough. <laughs> I, I'm not talking to enough people. I'm not teaching enough people. Or expectations will kill. I expect, you know, if I came up here and I expected 20 people to show up to, to the study, and all we had were the, the six of us here, you know, I might just say, well, why am I here? Why am I bothering? It's just too small and say, okay, we're just all going to go home. If my expectation is to teach whoever's here and then God blesses with 20 people, then it's like, oh, wow, thank you, God. Or even thank you for the six that are here. Or as it's been on occasion, thank you for the one that is here. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one person to teach. Or you could say, well, gee, there's only one person. I guess we're just going to cancel today because it's just not not worth doing anything and so expectation is a lot of our problem sometimes Job when he was living with his you know when God brought him to nothing his expectation as his as the guy his friends who were quoting to him the righteous do not get punished the righteous have wealth the righteous have health sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel of today if you do what God says, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, and if you're not, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. You know, that was basically how Job thought. You know, I've honored God, I've given my sacrifices, and here I am, I've lost everything. You know, only bad people lose everything. And Job believed this. If you read his answers very carefully, he's, he agrees with his friends. Yes, I know what you're saying is true, but... I have not been evil. I have not been. God was teaching him lessons. And many times God will teach us lessons about what we believe about him, especially if it's wrong. He'll teach us either way. 
But if we have wrong thoughts about who, who and what God is, he's going to allow us to suffer in a way that challenges what we believe about him. And regardless, he's going to come in and he's going to say, do you truly believe what you believe? And, and give us tests. Okay? All of this, when we go through hardship, is God saying, how much do you believe? How much do you accept? You know, when I teach that all things work together for good and you grab hold of that and say, okay, God, I'm really going to believe that, I can guarantee bad things are going to happen to you to see, do you truly believe that all things work together for good? When God teaches you about loving people, you can be guaranteed that somebody is going to come into your life that is very hard to love to say, are you, are you going to practice? Are you going to practice loving people? You know, they tell you don't, don't pray for patience, and I disagree with that. You know, but if you're learning about patience, God's going to put you into circumstances that are going to try your patience and say, are you going to rest in me? Are you going to be patient? When he teaches you, cast all your fears upon him, and you grab hold of that verse and say, God, I want to learn how to cast all my fears on you. Be ready for hard times to come that you're going to be worrying about and have to cast your fears on him. Does, it, does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Whatever he's teaching you, and everybody's going to have their own thing. Is they're reading the scriptures, they're hearing God's word being taught, your, the word is being preached, and all of a sudden something's going to click into you and God's, and, and God's going to say, I want you to learn this area. Wherever that's at, be ready. Look at your life and say, what is God trying to teach me? Yeah. I, I was talking to one of the chaplains today and he said something that God has now told me four times. So I'm going to have to say, okay, God, you're, you're trying to put something into my head. It's time for me to practice what it is you've been showing. He said it. I heard it three times on, on the radio from different speakers. And I'm going, okay, God, help me understand what it is you're trying to show me. How am I going to apply what you are definitely trying to put into my head? Because now it's, you hear it that many times and you, go, you start saying, all right, God, you're, you're trying to make a point. But, but it is true. I mean, God, God knows we're not going to get it the first time. You know, uh, geniuses don't get anything the first time you know, either. They, they need to learn. They need to test it. Science tests, every, you know, tests everything. God does the same thing with us. He's going to teach us something. And then he's going to let it, let us practice it, and practice it, and practice it, and practice it until we finally say, oh, God, get me out of the way, and you just finish the job. But you know, the one thing I'm learning over the years is, as I learn to let God do things, the testing process is shorter than it used to be when I was younger, because I've learned to surrender better. And it's... This is the walk of Christ. We learn to walk in the Spirit. And God knows that we're not going to get up and run in the Spirit, you know, the very first time He talks to us. Just like if you're, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to see your baby and, who's just starting to learn to walk. All right, get out on that football field and go, go run with the football. You know, you know, the kid can barely walk. You know, you're not going to go tell him, go start running. You know, go run the, go run the marathon. You know, you, 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 what's wrong with you? Why are you going so slow? You know, God is the same way with us. He knows that we learn and we need to grow in what we're learning. And that means we're going to take steps. We're going to fall down. We're going to be picked up. He's going to, we're going to take a couple steps. We're going to fall down. We're going to get picked up. We take a lot more steps and we fall down. 
you know, and eventually we learn to walk in that area. And then the good news is, hopefully we'll learn to run. <laughs> and leap and dance and whatever else, you know, whatever else you can think of, you know, that takes time to learn. And that's the way God is with us and even our spiritual life. He knows that when we first get up and learn something brand new that, that our flesh is not going to like it and our spirit needs to grow. And, and he knows that we're going to fall down. And like a good parrot, he's going to pick us back up and, and help us walk a few steps. And he's going to let us, you know, watch us fall down again. But eventually, we get the victory and we learn to walk. And then we get learn to run and, and all the other stuff that goes along with, with that. And that is growing. And God says to grow. You know, we're told, you know, desire the sincere milk of the word. And that's what we start with. We start with the milk. Okay? But if you're still doing nothing but the milk of the word of God, you know, 5, 6, 10, 20, 30, 40 years into your Christian walk, you've got a problem. Just as you would think of anybody, if you saw somebody in their 40s or 50s sucking on a bottle of formula, you're going to go, you know, are you eating regular? Oh, no, I just love this stuff. It's so good. You know, uh, you've got a problem. You know, you should be eating your steak and potatoes and, and all of that. And God is saying the same thing. Grow. Grow up and learn to walk spiritually. And he's going to throw the test our way to see if we're growing. And all that, to get back to where we're at in verse 9. <laughs> and those that died in the plague were 24,000 people. All right? This was a lot of people that were committing their fornication and turning to Baal. 24,000. And that probably wasn't all of them. Probably every one of them wasn't killed because it says that Phineas stopped the plague with his zeal. He was so zealous to protect God and to say, I'm going to do this, that God said, okay, that's enough. And this is something that we can do in our own lives and in, our, in the lives of our family and, and friends. If we're zealous to bring up God's standards, God can say, okay, it's been covered. It, people have listened. And here we see this great change in verse 10, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, and I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace. And this is, this is kind of interesting that he says, Phinehas was zealous. And zealous is a pretty good, strong word. There is a zealousness for God that we should have, where we expect to see God move. We expect to move for God. We expect to see these things. And it said that, he, that he was, God was ready to consume them because of his jealousy. He was so angry with them, he was going to consume the people, all of them. Okay, and we've seen this various times. Usually it's been Moses who stood up and said, God, don't. Don't do this. But in this one, we see that it's Phineas who brings the end to this judgment. And why? Well, the answer to this is, right now we're sitting at about 39 years for out of Egypt. Moses is no longer going to be leading the people very soon. All right? We're, we have just a couple more chapters in this book, and then we go into the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is one very long sermon from 
from Moses to tell the people what they're going to do in the in the promised land. It's a very it it takes a long time to read all those chapters, but it is Moses just teaching them for a couple of days and then he's going to be taken out of the picture and die. All right? So we're very close to the end of the 40 years of wandering. They've already defeated the Amalekites and they're getting they're getting ready to fight the Moabites. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land. So we're sitting at year 39 out of, out of Egypt. Moses is, a, is a 119 years old, 118 years old at this point. And God is trans, transferring the leadership to the next generation, basically. And this is something we always have to be ready for. As we age and get older, God's going to say, I'm going to transition the leadership over to other people. That doesn't mean that we totally quit serving God, <laughs> but the leadership goes to other people at, at a certain point, the next generation, because God doesn't want to see his church, his people left floundering mm -hmm. at the death of the leader. And this happens to a lot of churches at times when you know, their, their pastor is not, not uh, worked at building somebody up or training somebody or or sometimes pastors get so jealous they don't want anybody to do anything. And I've seen, I've seen churches like that where the pastor just won't let anybody else teach. They never get to do anything. And, and that leader then is taken out and all of a sudden the church flounders because nobody else has been groomed. And Example, the history of this church, the, yeah. the old age of this church. At times, this church has had those problems. But you've got to have people who want to get trained too, for that matter. But... Paul, Paul trained Timothy and Titus and a number of men to say, you're my right-hand men. You're the ones that I'm going to put in charge. And then he told them, oh, and by the way, guys, you go find men and train them <laughs> to be able to take your place. And we're seeing this happen. God is developing Joshua and raising him up in the sight of the people in the battles. Phineas is being raised up in the sight of the people to to be the next, you know, be one of the high priests. And we're seeing his zealousness for God. You see his love for God and make it known that he's going to make a good high priest someday because of he, this is how he loves God. He wants God to be lifted up and exalted. And he's willing to do whatever God says to do in the process. And so he's being raised up and being raised up in the people's eyes, okay? He's, he's the one that's getting credit for stopping this slaughter, okay? The people are going to say, oh, yeah, that's Phineas. He's the, one, he's the one that kept us all from dying, okay? And he's, he's going to have this raising up. And we see this coming on. And the promise that God gave him, I love this. Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. Salome. Salome. And we translated it peace, but for the Jew, it has so much more depth than just peace. Okay, when they, when they use the word shalom, they're meaning, you know, peace with God, peace with man, peace, in a, you know, and they mean it all at the same time. It's a very strong word for them. It is not used... Not shalom, that's sense. Huh? No, peace. Shalom. And they still use that as a greeting, huh? I'd have to look into that. Yeah, it means peace. So 
There may be healing there, but it was because of peace. And peace oftentimes is what we really need more than anything, God's peace. One of the greatest things I remember when I got saved is just that peacefulness, okay? My sins are forgiven, I'm at peace with God, I'm not at war with God, and God is saying, he gave Phineas a covenant, an agreement of peace, that he was going to have peace. And then it says, not only that, but it was, and he shall have it and his seed after him, even the covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. So it wasn't just him, it was all of his seeds that he was going to have the everlasting priesthood that was going to be in his family. And same thing Aaron was promised, an everlasting priesthood, but Phineas has shown that he has been obedient to God, and God said, here is your reward. I'm going to reward you. you you're, you're, nobody will take the priesthood from your family because of your actions. Same thing that happened with Abraham. Abraham was told, go. And what did God say? Here's the promise. You went, you were obedient. Here's your promise. I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham. You're going to be the father of nations. Your seed are going to be as numerous as the sand and as numerous as the stars. If you can count either one of them, then you can know how big your family will be. Yeah. And we've never been able to count the stars. And now that we have things like the Hubble Space Telescope, they, they aim it in some direction and they let it time photo, photo, and all they end up with is with a white, white picture because there's so many stars where they've focused. Okay. Focus is, you know, that we can't see, but the photograph says, try to count these. <laughs> you know, try to count all this white, <laughs> white blob on the, on the picture. You know, I don't know how many of you have ever, ever might, I couldn't even imagine trying to do this, but try to count the sand to the beach. <laughs> okay. And that's just at the beach. That's not even all the other sand out there, you know, the sand all around us. You know, go out there and grab a couple handfuls of sand and try to count the sand. <laughs> It's not a job I would want to do. And that's just a couple handfuls. And, you know, and, and Abraham was told, your descendants are going to number as the sand. As he's standing in the middle of a desert looking around and saying, that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, descendants, God. And here, Phineas has said, your priesthood's going to be forever because you were zealous for me. And when we obey God, there are blessings. And there are blessings on earth, and there are blessings in heaven. And the heavenly blessings are much better than the ones on the earth because they're not going to fade away, they're not going to go away. But when we're obedient to God, oftentimes we are blessed in this world as well as the heaven, heavenly world. And that doesn't always mean financial blessings. But you know, God also will meet the financial needs. You know, mm -hmm. When you have a need, we need to go to God. We need to give Him our needs. We need to give Him what we want. And oftentimes, we have to be careful because how often do we limit God? You know, God, I need uh, $50 to pay this bill. And God's going, well, I had, I had 500 for you, but if all you want is 50, here's the 50. Okay? That doesn't mean we ask for a lot more, but how often do we pray in such a way that we limit God? 
Yeah. How many times have we tried to pray, God, I want this to happen, and I think this is how you probably should do it, God. You know, we may not be quite that bold, but we're, we may be thinking in our mind, well, if God did this, and he brought this person over here, and, and, and this happened, and, you know, and we're thinking about all the way God probably should, you know, should or could <laughs> fix our problem, and we limit, limit what God is out there ready to do. And we want to be very careful with that. Not, God says that, you know, we're to just pray. Let him handle all the, all the issues. And God is a good father. He wants to bless us, as any good father does. You know, and his example was, if, you're, if your child asks for, a, for an egg, are you going to give him a snake? <laughs> You know, no, you know, you're not, you're not doing something that's hurting your child. As a matter of fact, you, he wants one egg, you're probably going to go, okay, let me make you a whole omelet, you know. You know, let me make you four or five egg omelets, you know. It's, you know, you don't, you're not trying to be stingy with your, you know, our kids unless we absolutely have to, you know, with, the, with their finances. But even then, our desire is what more could I have done for them? God's the same way. He is not sitting there, okay, here's your, here's your eyedropper, and we're going to make sure you get two drops, because that's all you need. He's, he, he says he gives it to us abundantly. He gives it to us according to grace. We don't deserve anything that he gives us, and yet he gives it to us anyway, and he gives it to us graciously, and he does it abundantly. And, and sometimes we're just so focused in on something that we totally forget and, and don't see how gracious he's being, how kind he's being. Because we got, we got that little bit I expected. You know, and God's going, what about the rest of it I'm trying to give you? And we want to be here, he's saying, Phineas, you're getting a great blessing because of your zealousness. And your family's going to have this blessing. Verse 14, in the name of, Israel, of, of the Israelite that was slain, even that, that was slain with the Midianite woman, Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, the prince of the house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianitish woman was, all, that was slain was Cosby, or Cosby, the daughter of Zer. He was the head over his people and the chief of the house of Midian. These were not insignificant people, okay? Zimri is one of the princes. He's, he's one of the top people in the, in the tribe of Simeon. This woman that he brought in was a, was a top person in, the, in, the, in her family. And God said, basically by this action is, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to pay. This is good for us because how often do we tend to believe that you know, if you're rich enough, you can get away with what you want. If you're powerful enough, you get away with what you want. And you know, at times it seems like they do. The rich do seem to get away with a lot. The politicians try, you know, seem to get away with a lot. You know, corporate people tend to seem like they're getting away. But in reality, God is going to make them pay for what they've done. And we've got to keep in mind that God does not close the books the same way we do. You know, we look at somebody and say, well, they didn't get, they didn't, they didn't, uh, get punished, and it's been a week. And God says, no, they haven't been punished in a week. But they will get punished. 
Yeah. It's in God's timing. Phineas yeah. had to make a big decision to murder these people, and for them to murder these, it's breaking the commandment of somehow murder. Okay, let's let's correct your law, your statement there. He did not murder them. He executed them with capital punishment because that's what God said to do. Leaders and government can kill people without being murdered because they are they're tasked by God to protect the people. Okay, when Moses told these people get the heads together and start killing these people for their disobedience, it wasn't an act of murder. It wasn't an act of war. It was God said you were to do these things. You are now in violation of the law, and you are and it's a capital crime. And they were executed. Okay. And God, all through the scriptures, God is completely for capital punishment done correctly. And it was the bold, the punishment was literally because of the boldness of what he was doing. They, here they're executing people for this action, and he's walking in the middle of all of this with this person. And walks right into his tent and saying, you know, hey, you've been saying not to do this, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big shot, and this is a big shot, and we're going to, we're going to show everybody that we can do what we want. Phineas, just like you said, he's saying, who is this guy who's, you know, we're killing everybody because of this sin, and he is thinking he's above this, and Phineas is going to show him that no, you're not above it. And I think because he dealt really so strongly with a, yeah, and you got it, and that's why I wanted to stop. Murder was not what was going on here. It was a capital punishment. It was an execution of capital punishment. Twenty-four thousand people being executed by capital punishment. Okay, the last two verses. I know we're just a little bit, of, but and verse sixteen. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Vex the Midianites and smite them, for they vex you with their wiles." There, wherefore they have beguiled you in this matter of Beor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the prince of the Midian, their sister, which was slain in the day for the plague for Beor's sake. So God said, okay, now is the time to go to war. Because originally he said, just ask for permission to cross Moab. And this is what started this four chapters ago. They asked for permission to go through Moab to buy water, to buy food. They were going to stay on the highway and just pass through Moab. And they said no. And Balak goes out to fight them. And now they're doing this treachery to them. And God tells Moses, okay, now go in and, go in and kill them. That's what he's saying. Smite them, vex them. You, you now have my permission to go in and kill every one of them. That's what they're waiting for. With and, and they got their permission to do this. And this whole process is going to happen. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word and to see the seriousness of sin among your people. Lord, help us to always be cognizant of working sin out of our own lives and putting it out of others and that we can help them when we can help them. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.